A couple days ago, I checked, last I checked, um, the number 16 podcast in the world, according to Apple Podcasts, is a podcast series put out by Christianity Today called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. I've already had a lot of you folks telling me that you're listening to it. I've been listening to it. I know a bunch of you are too and have had, it, uh, had, had a lot to say about it, a lot of thoughts and questions raised by it. I'm tempted to get a show of hands just to see how many of you have been listening to it, but I'm not going to do that. If you, if you haven't listened to it, maybe you will after what I say here in a minute. It, it, this is a podcast that that tells the story of the, of the rise and fall of a megachurch in Seattle called Mars Hill Church. Tells the story of the pastor who founded this church and led it to this unbelievable size and influence from a, from a garage in his home, something like that, to almost packing out an NFL football stadium on an Easter service not, not 15 years later. It tells how that, that story took shape, how this church just blew up metaphorically and then imploded, ultimately dissolved inside of 20 years after it began. There are literally hundreds of thousands of people around the world listening to this podcast right now. Blows my mind. And with, with, with such an eagerness that, that when, when a, a while back they went a few weeks without releasing a new episode and everybody was expecting one on the normal day, all this angst, all this, all this anticipation just exploded onto the internet in comments and blogs and on Twitter feeds. People were just so crazy about this show. They couldn't do without it for the two or three weeks it took to get a new episode produced. It's, it's crazy. This thing is mainstream on lists with podcasts like This American Life or Serial, or the Joe Rogan experience. And, and honestly, if you listen to it at all, it isn't tough to tell why the podcast is so popular. Uh, I mean, this story is gripping. And it's a story that's really, really well told, for one thing. The podcast, the, guy, the folks who are behind it know how to do their jobs. But I think the, the real key to the popularity of this podcast is not just how gripping the story is, or just how well the story is told, but just how ugly the story is. That this is a story full of pride and arrogance and bullying behavior and reckless ambition and conflict and all manner of selfishness wreaking havoc in the life of a local church from the top down. Along with this popularity of this show, one thing that I've started to see popping up online are people stepping back and asking why do we love this show so much? Not just what's going on here in this show and the details that it puts in front of us, but, but what's going on and how we're responding to it. Not just so, what's so great about it, but what it says about us that we're drawn to it in the way that we are. And for one thing, I, what is this urge to see the mighty fall that seems so deep down in us? This urge to, 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 to see behind the scenes, to have the veil pulled back, to look at what's underneath the veneer of religion and find scandal there. Why are we drawn to stories like that? Somebody's referred to it as failure porn. And I think there's no question that's part of the appeal. That can't be healthy for us. For another thing, shows like this one, I think, seem to be encouraging a a general cynicism about churches in general. I, I mean, that's something I've certainly noticed. 
and, and the people that I've talked to and some of the stuff that I've read online, I think a growing sense that, that we ought to be really suspicious about church leadership, that there's something about the way churches work that feeds it. And this can lead to a kind of, a kind of tendency to expect the worst of our leaders and maybe even root for something to be wrong, a kind of gut level instinct that we bring to our churches where you're guilty until proven otherwise, where, where you're quick to see the worst in people and maybe, maybe keep a kind of critical distance from, from others, especially leaders, and, and, and be even hesitant to, to come to them for the kind of spiritual care, care and nourishment that you need. That can't be healthy either. Not given how often the Bible talks about the importance of healthy leadership and trust for our growth as Christians. I think there's another way to respond to this show and to stories like this of, of church leadership gone wrong. Another way to take it seriously, the problem, the threat, that in often, oftentimes churches have been deeply damaged by the, by the behavior of the leaders who have been charged to lead them. I think there's another way to take that threat seriously but respond very differently to stories like this one. It's a response I'm hoping and praying for. It's a, it's a response that, that our passage this morning directs us to. Because here's the thing, guys. The Bible is as clear as any podcast out there about how toxic church leadership can be and how dangerous it is to be in a church led by leaders who are out for themselves rather than for, for others. The Bible is full of stories of leadership that went wrong. But the, just as consistently as the Bible puts these negative options out there, these warning stories out there, just as consistently, the Bible points us to positive models for what leadership should look like and tells us how important it is to be invested in making sure you have healthy leadership in your churches. Another way to respond to scandals like the one at the heart of this podcast is to take even more personal responsibility for making sure the church you're part of has healthy godly, humble leadership in it because all of our spiritual growth flows from what God gives us through his word as it's taught to us. This is the model that this passage this morning gives to us. A model that's not tied to cynicism and suspicion but to a healthy awareness that the threats are real but good leadership is possible. The, the passage that we, that we picked up on this morning is right in the middle of the last words that Paul gave to a group of pastors in Ephesus, a, a group of men that he would have spent years investing in. He spent something like three years in this one church despite the scale of the need and how far the gospel still had to reach and how badly he wanted to make it to places like Spain. Despite this itch that he surely had to go, 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 Paul stopped in this one place and spent years pouring into this one set of men that he could then hand this church over to. And in this passage in Acts 20, we see him doing just that. We see him realizing and telling to them, this is it. This is the last time you're going to see my face. He knows he's about to die. And now he is handing over what's most precious to him in the world to this group of men that he's developed for just this moment. And what he gives us in his words to them is the positive model that we need for what pastor, uh, pastoral leadership should look like in the church. Here's what we should work towards. Here's what we should pray for. And we're just going to walk through it bit by bit. Now, I know, I mean, I'm going to just say this right at the front. I know most of you guys out there are not pastors and won't be. Uh, so it is a little odd in a way 
to be spending a whole morning looking at a passage that may seem to you like it's for somebody else. And in a way, it, it is. I mean, it's most directly for those of us who serve as pastors or who may, may serve in that way someday. But, but in our life together, we, we bear one another's burdens. We rejoice and mourn together. We're a family. We're an organic whole where, where all the parts need one another and relate together so that the whole can be healthy. So one way, one of the most important ways you serve this church is in knowing what kind of faithful pastoral leadership we all need and in praying and encouraging your pastors towards that model. What we're going to look at today is absolutely an aspirational model. It's something we want, those of us who serve as pastors here, and, and, and something that, that we trust the Lord is building in us, but, but uh, things where we have a long ways to go. We're asking you to sort of know on the inside what the target is so that you can then help us as we build and, and, and work towards it. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to go through Paul's last words to these pastors from Ephesus, and we're going to find for ourselves in this crystallizing moment what sort of leadership we need step by step. There are four things that Paul hands over from his life as a pastor that he asks his friends to carry on. Four things that I'm going to isolate out of this, these just a handful of verses that are our target for pastoral ministry here. What we're working and praying on, what we want everyone bought into. Here's the first thing Paul puts on our radar. Paul tells us to remember that God's word is enough. Remember that God's word is enough. That's his first principle of ministry. I mean, ultimately, that's all over his letters. It's running all through these stories and acts that we've been looking at. All as, as Paul's ministry is played out story by story, we've seen him over and over again talk about the word and why it's the power source. It's the center of what he's doing as, a, as a, an apostle. And it makes sense then that when he turns to his friends with these last words to them, the first thing he'd highlight is his commitment to God's word and his confidence that, that it has the power to build up the church. It's, it's what we need more than anything. God works through it. This is how we lean into what he's doing. So think about it, guys. Here's Paul, never gonna see this beloved church again. This is a church in which he's poured so much. He founded it. He spent years building it up. And, and he's actually an apostle. If ever there were an irreplaceable leader in the life of a church, it was Paul. He has to know that. They're not going to get another apostle Paul. This is it. You'd think like a good parent that Paul would be struggling with fear at this point, wondering what's going to happen when the, when the chick flies out of the nest, when he's not around to feed them and to look after them anymore. But that isn't what you get from Paul here at all. Now, this man is, he is relentlessly confident and he's confident because he knows the power behind their faith and their growth up to this point. It's never been him. It's never been his skill as a communicator. It's never been the force of his personality. It's never been his instincts for decision-making. As useful as all those things might have been, Paul has never been the key to the growth that's happened in the life of this church. He knows that. That power has always been God's word, not his, but God's. Look at verse 27 with me. It's because this is God's word, Paul has submitted to it all the way. Verse 27 says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He taught all of it because it isn't his to filter. 
It's not his right to pull out what part he thinks they would like best and suppress the parts that might turn him off. He shared all of it, the whole counsel, because all of it comes from God and therefore all of it matters. Look at verse 32. Because it's God's word, Paul trusts it. He doesn't just submit to it. He actually, with confidence, trusts it's enough. Look at verse 32. And now, he says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. It's this word of grace, he's saying, this, this message about what God has done in Jesus. This is what builds people up. This is how you grow. This is how you get the encouragement you need to hang on in faith. It's, it's this word that, that promises you an inheritance, a future defined by what Jesus has earned for you. It's this word that keeps that vision in front of you when you're so tempted to, to look around at what's around you and want what all your neighbors have instead of what he's promised you. It's this word that calls you back to that orientation over and over, week after week. And it's his word that, that gives you this place among those who are being sanctified, he says. In other words, it's God's word that makes you holy as you come back to it over and over. He uses it as a power source to change who you are, to make you more and more like Jesus. Paul's confident because he can commend them to the power of God's word and rest in peace. Now, here's what that means for us, guys. This is, this is huge. What Paul says here means that we, right here in our little life together, right here in Nashville, Tennessee, in the year 2021, we have the same source of power for growth and strength and vitality and health that the church in Ephesus had when Paul was with them. I don't mean after they left, I mean even when he was there. We have at our disposal the same thing they had when they had Paul. How encouraging is that? God has left us with exactly what we need. It should be encouraging to us, and it is encouraging to us, but guys, I'll be honest, it is so easy to forget it. If not intellectually, at least at the level of our hearts, it is so difficult sometimes to trust week in and week out that God's word is enough. So I, I, let me just ask you right here, before we go any further, let me just pause right here and say, to those of you who are members of this church, perhaps the most foundational investment you can make in healthy leadership in our church is to pray that your leaders will trust God's word and then encourage your leaders to keep feeding it to you over and over and over. Let me say that again. I, I, I so believe this is true. It may be that the most foundational investment you can make in the leadership culture of your church and making sure it stays healthy is to pray that your leaders will trust God's word and then to encourage your leaders to keep on feeding it to you week after week after week. What that means is praying against pride in us. As a pastor, it's so easy to start believing that you've got something unique to offer, that you've got some sort of niche that gives your church an edge or keeps it going strong, or maybe it, uh, if, if you don't, you think you should, that you ought to be looking for it, that until you can find it, you won't be sure your church will, will, will thrive in a competitive market out there. Pride is so toxic for us as leaders of churches and we are so tempted to it. Would you pray that God will protect us 
from the pride of thinking that we are what we have to offer instead of his word. If you pray for us to love his word, it'll mean also praying against fear in us. Maybe even more than a temptation to pride is the temptation to fear and a desire for control. Because as leaders, you long to see good things happening in your church. I mean, you're, you're in this because you love people and you love it when they're changing, when they're actually thriving and growing. And you love to see your church grow. You love to see people who don't know Jesus coming and hearing about Jesus and believing in him. You want to see it full, full not just of people, but of happiness and hope. And to trust the word to bring that about, that's to trust something that you can't see and can't control. And earlier this week, many of our small groups were studying Mark chapter 4, where Jesus talks about this as, as uh, using farming analogy. He says that, that you sow the seed and you sleep and you, you wake up and the seed is growing. You don't even know how. Nobody knows how that happened. It just happened. You, just, you spread the seed, but then you've got to just wait. I, none of us like to wait. We want to know that it's happening and see on what schedule it's happening and, and know what we can do to make sure it keeps on happening in the exact ways we want to see it happen. It's so tempting to look for a strategy that we can plot out for something that we can measure along the way, you know? Tempting to fear that maybe, maybe if your church isn't thriving the way you want it to, it's because you're missing out on the key component that you, that, that you could have gotten from some conference you haven't gone to yet or some book you haven't yet read. Friends, would you just pray that we won't be afraid of that? That we will trust we are doing what God has said he will bless. And yeah, that means we gotta just wait on him. But it's a good thing to wait for the Lord. That's the key for his people's posture before him from the beginning of the Old Testament all the way to now as we wait for heaven. We, we just trust and wait. Would you pray that we won't be too, too afraid to do that? And would you pray for confidence in God's word? Not just praying against pride and fear that might distract us from trusting it, but, but for a confidence that it really, really does work. I mean, as a church, we, we want to put all our chips on him. What is it that will show that God is the one who's at work in us? So if anything good happens, everybody who sees it knows that wasn't about them. They didn't do that. They didn't hack something no one else has been able to hack. No, they just trusted that God would give growth and look what he did. We want to be all in on that for his glory as a church. That means trusting his word, depending on it above all. Would you pray that we will be confident as we do it, that his, his glory will come out of our church if we do what he's called us to do? And, and guys, as you pray, let me just tell you this one last thing before we move on. One of the most encouraging things you can do to encourage your pastors is to tell them what God is doing in your life through the word as it was handed to you. I, I can't tell you what it does to boost us in our work to know that you are being built up by it, to know specifically how it's meeting your needs that you have, to know how the Lord is using it to keep you in faith despite what you're facing. It's nice to be told that it was a great sermon. If you ever want to tell me that or any other preachers that, by all means, go ahead. You know, we'll take it. But it's even nicer, I mean, infinitely nicer to be told specifically, here's what God did to encourage me when you said that about this text. Because that helps us to remember it wasn't us that helped you. That burden wasn't on our shoulders. We gave it everything we had. There was no chance it was going to be enough. God didn't need it to be because he's enough and he works by his word. Would you remind us of that? 
by helping us see how God is using the word in your life. It would be such a gift to us if you would. And thank you for doing it. You guys are great about that for the record. You often do this and it means the world to us when you do. So please do keep it up. Now, let me move to the second thing that Paul shows us here. We've been tracking together here on what it looks like to, to, to be a faithful pastor. Four things that Paul is handing over from his life as a pastor that he wants his friends to carry on now that he's leaving. The first one is to remember that, that God's word is enough. We don't have to add to it. We don't have to supplement it. We don't have to figure out what he hasn't left with us. He's given us everything we need. That's the first thing. But the second thing is this. Remember, remember that the church belongs to God. That ultimately the church belongs to God. Paul moves next from this hope that depends on God to the church that belongs to God. And he helps us to see that a pastor, a faithful pastor, is one who knows his role. Not the hero, not the source of power, not the center of attention, not the reason that the church exists or that it thrives. A pastor knows that this church is God's own possession and it's precious to him. His role comes from that. Look at verse 28 with me, would you? Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. But then he describes this flock and look at how he describes it. This is a flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. In other words, your role comes from God. And he continues, to care for the church of God. Your church belongs to God, it's his. And he continues, which he obtained with his own blood. This church is precious. Your role comes from him. This church belongs to him. And this church was paid for by him. Friends, this is, this is, this is amazing truth right here. Let me just chew on this for a little bit together. Just these few phrases. Sometimes the Bible, sometimes Paul himself, sometimes the focus is on the shock of what it costs God to forgive sinners. You'll often see that. Paul will talk about that, that God loved us when we were still sinners, that even when we were his enemies, Christ died for us. It's just this amazing thing that, that someone so high and lifted up would come so low for people who were so apathetic towards him at best and even outright hostile. It's mind-blowing. Why would he love us? Paul talks about that sometimes, and with good reason. We have to be really careful to avoid the sense that God loves us because we were worthy of it. As if God, in looking for a people to purchase, had a, some sort of dating app in front of him and he's swiping through profiles until he finds the perfect one. He thought, yeah, that one will be worth it. I'll take that one. That, that, that's not how the Bible describes it at all. Just the opposite. God's grace comes to us at our deepest need when we deserve it not a bit. And he pours himself out to save us despite ourselves, not because of ourselves. That's, an, that's a crucial part of the gospel we all need to understand. And that's why sometimes Paul emphasizes it. But here, here Paul has something else in mind. Here Paul is not emphasizing just how much, how shocking it is that Christ would pay so much for people like us. Here what he's drawing our attention to is how precious we, the church, are to him that he would be willing to. I'm not saying it makes sense. It's not because he found this one diamond in the rough that was worth selling everything to obtain. 
It doesn't really have anything to do with us. But right at the same time, the reality is the church is precious to him. How precious must it be that he would be willing to pay this much to obtain her, to pay this cost? This is, this is the emphasis in John 3.16, right? God so loved the world. The world was so precious to him that he gave his only son, the, the, the most precious thing in the world, so that anyone who believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. To him, this church was worth the life of Jesus. You don't need to understand why that is to see that it just is. And Christ faced the cross, even the cross, with joy because he knew what he was buying. And why does a pastor need to know this? Why does a pastor need to know that this is who the church is to God? I see at least two reasons. One is that knowing this is how precious the church is to God protects us as pastors from the temptation to use the church as our platform as if it's all about us. That could happen. Knowing that this church is precious to God, that he was willing to pay even the cost of his own son's blood to obtain it. Well, that means this church is nobody's platform. It is not something you climb up on top of to put your talents on display. It's possible to treat the church like somebody on vacation might treat the Grand Canyon or the Eiffel Tower, you know, as this backdrop for a selfie. See that back there? But you really, I'm the one who's in front of it. And I'm, what I'm doing in that selfie is I'm actually capturing these things. That's the word we use for it, right? I'm taking them in for myself. The Grand Canyon is there so that I might pose in front of it. The Eiffel Tower is not just some wonder of human engineering. It's, it's a backdrop for my vacation, for, for what I got to see. It can turn these things into, into props for, for me. When that Grand Canyon has been inspiring awe for thousands of years, it will be for thousands of years after I'm gone. It's not my prop. It's the Grand Canyon. The Eiffel Tower, actually not that pretty, is it? It's, 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 it's sort of famous for being famous, if you ask me. But still, it took a lot of engineering to get that, to get that Eiffel Tower up there. It, it, it's been inspiring people for generations and will long after I'm gone. It's more precious than a prop for my vacation photo. But sometimes we can do this to the church. This is my platform. This is where I put my talents and gifts on display. This church is here for me. It's not that. It was purchased by God at the cost of the blood of Jesus because it's precious and so much bigger than any one of us. We have to know that. It keeps us humble. It keeps us from making this all about us. But that isn't all it does. Knowing that, knowing that the church is this precious to God helps pastors like me not to give up when it's difficult to be a pastor because sometimes it is. I mean, Paul knew this. Right here in this text, right here in this last speech to the Ephesian elders, Paul two different times talks about his tears. He talks about what essentially emotionally it cost him to be a pastor in Ephesus. We gotta be careful not to hear him talking about the word earlier on not to hear him in verse, uh, what was it, verse uh, 26 saying, you know what, I've already given it to you. I'm innocent of the blood of all of you. It's now on you whether or not you believe it. You know, I'm out of here. Job done. 
Sometimes we can read that and think there's almost a detachment in Paul, like he's callous, just sort of throwing the word and then moving on to the next town. No, 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 no. He labored for years with tears. Look at, look at what he says uh, in, in verse, um, let's see, this is in verse 31. He says, remember, for three years, I didn't cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. He's just constantly going at it. He's pouring all his soul into these people and it's breaking his heart. He's deeply invested in the outcome of their faith. And, when, and when, when you're deeply invested in something you can't control in the lives of people that really matter to you, but that are struggling in big ways, it can be exhausting. It was for Paul. How did he carry on under that cost for all those years? How can we when it's costly here? It helps to know that God loves them and we love God. When, when you love someone, then what's precious to them becomes precious to you. I hesitate about whether to use this example. It's not perfect, but I think it's worth a try. My family has a dog. Um, it was not my idea to get one. I personally feel very little for this dog and that's where this analogy isn't gonna be perfect because I feel really strong love for all of you people, okay? So just don't push the analogy too far, but I'm not a dog person. I don't dislike this dog, but I don't have a positive affection for it either. I just see it there. But meanwhile, for my family, I mean, they're reading meaning into every twitch of every eyelash. It's a basset hound. He's completely expressionless. He just stares with these big, droopy, sad eyes. And my family is completely convinced that they know the in-depth meaning of every expression that he gives. And the same expression communicates wildly different things to them based on their own moods in that moment. They get so much joy out of seeing him flopped over on his back with his feet up in the air while he sleeps. It just melts them. They love the way his bark sounds, the way it howls, the way it wakes up the neighbor. But basically, if he does it, they love it. This dog is precious to them. And even though I wouldn't choose to own him, <laughs> because they are so precious to me, I get genuine, deep joy out of having this dog in our home. I mean that. I hope they're listening right now, taking notes. I, I, do, I, I get joy off of their joy because they're precious to me. What's precious to them becomes, well, if not precious to me, like tolerable. <laughs> now, now, okay, the, there's the end of the analogy. I, don't push it too far. Now, let me come back to this text. You see what Paul is saying? As a pastor, you need to know this thing was purchased at the cost of the blood of Jesus. There is nothing short of Jesus more precious than this church. And because this church is precious to God, if God matters to you, the church will too. Pastors need to know that so that they can carry on with joy even when it's hard. Because whatever is worthy of the life of Christ is worthy of our lives too. It's that simple. Friends, move on with me now to a third thing that Paul would have us to know. A third thing he's passing on from his life, his model of ministry to his friends as they take over responsibility for this church, knowing they won't see him again. 
A third thing that he passes on, remember that the threats are real. Remember that the church belongs to God. That's what we've been looking at. Now look with me at this. Remember that the threats are real. Turn with me to verses 29 and 30. There's an urgency to Paul's call to pay attention to what's so precious to God that comes from these verses. I know, Paul says, that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul knows for all that he's invested over these years, for all the good fruit he's seen born in the life of this church, for all the reasons for optimism he has about where they're headed, for all the strength that he can see, it's not enough yet and never will be. He can't just rest on what he's already built because a church in a lot of ways isn't like a church building. I mean, if you look, look at our building. I mean, yeah, it's under a lot of construction, so maintenance is required. It's not like a set it and forget it kind of thing with a church building. I get that. I'm learning that more and more with each passing day. But in another way, guys, the foundation stones on which we're standing or sitting right now, they were set in 1906 and they're still there, working great. And these brick walls that are all around us, they're standing strong despite two tornadoes that blew out parts of them. These beams, they're still solid, still holding up the roof despite over a hundred years of time that's passed. And you're sitting on pews that saints have been sitting on for decade after decade right where you are. There are stone cathedrals all over Europe that even make our building look brand new built a thousand years ago and still standing exactly where they were put when the last block was laid at the top. In a lot of ways, a church building you can set and forget. But Paul knows that a church is more like a plant that needs to be tended constantly. The church, this life together that we have, it's gotta be constantly fed. It's gotta be nourished and watered. It needs to be fertilized and sometimes Sometimes it needs to be protected from all sorts of threats, from heat and cold and pests and diseases. Church leadership is a lot like gardening in this way. It, 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 the work is just never done. You can't really ever be off guard. That's why the main commands that Paul gives us here, the main commands in verse 28 and 31 are to pay attention and to be alert. You see that? Look at the verses with me. Pay careful attention. That's the command in verse 28. And in verse 31, be alert. Paul didn't tell us exactly what he has in mind, what kind of threats he's thinking about. He just calls them wolves. That tells us more about how seriously he takes them than about who they actually are, how you can recognize them. But from what Paul says here, and from what he says in his letters, where he spent so much time warning churches about specific threats, I think there's a couple things we can look out for, a couple things he means for us to pay attention to. On one hand, there will be theological threats to our church. Things that, that are said about God that aren't true about God. These are what Paul spent so much time on in his letters. The sort of things he wrote about and the sort of problems that have come up over and over again in the history of the church. Like they tend to gain traction because there's a grain of truth in them. Maybe a better way to put it is that there's a coating of truth on them that helps the pill go down, but there's poison inside. So, for example, he wrote Galatians. 
to push back on some teachers who were right about how wonderful the law was, but wrong in saying, if you want to please God, you got to keep the whole law. That's how you'll get God on your side. There was some truth there, but a lot of error. And because of the truth, the error had even more power to take root and to spread. Through the history of the church, you'll find the same thing happening over and over again. One of the big battles the church had to fight in the early years of the church after the New Testament era was who is Jesus actually? And some people celebrated how human he was because he really was. What a great man. So worthy of following. His example is so powerful, but, but we all know that no man is actually God. So part of the truth of his humanity was used to shave off the truth of his divinity. It made it more dangerous, more acceptable. Later on in the history of the church, there were things taught about how you get right with God that just weren't true. They were close, but not all the way. They talked about how Jesus as an example was somebody we should follow. We should try to be just like him. Thank goodness we had this teacher this moral man to lead us, all true. But it was used to, to minimize the fact that Jesus died for sinners, to make them, to make them clean, to, to make them forgivable for what they've already done wrong. Paul is saying, watch out, because he knows theological threats are often gonna come packaged in something that's true, but on the inside there's poison. And if you're drawn to pastoral ministry, because you love to go hunting for heresies to beat back, you, you probably shouldn't be a pastor. Any more than somebody should get into gardening because they love attacking bugs or pulling weeds. Like that's not what gets you into gardening. You hate that you have to do that. You don't want to give your time and attention to swatting off bugs or pulling weeds. What you love is, is plants, the thriving and healthy and fruitful kind. But if you love thriving and healthy and fruitful plants, then you're willing to take on threats when they come. You'd much rather you didn't have to knock those bugs off. You'd much rather you didn't have to spend time pulling the weeds. But, but if there are bugs on your plants that you love, you spray them. And if there are weeds fighting for nourishment with these plants that you love, you pull them out. You have to because you love your plants. You shouldn't get into ministry if what you really love is fighting off theological heresy. But you shouldn't get into pastoral ministry if you're never willing to draw lines, to warn against what isn't true to the gospel, because that's part of the job. If you're never having to do that, if you're never having to hold something up and say, not that, it isn't because everything's great or the threat isn't real. It's because you aren't paying attention or you haven't been staying alert. This work is fundamental to the role of a pastor. Paul has in mind, I think, when he talks about wolves, partly theological threats that we'll face. But I think he also has in mind, and maybe even more directly here in this text, what you might call personal character threats. When a leader uses his people for his own purposes, the wolf image, that's a predator. A wolf is, is looking to devour. A wolf sees a sheep and thinks, that's food for me. And I think what he's, what, he's, what he's referring to here when he talks about people who will come up even from among you and lead sheep away after themselves, pull the disciples after themselves are, are people who are gonna use the church for their own benefit rather than give themselves to it, to serve it. 
friends, the reality is not one of us is above doing that. Let me put it even more strongly. Every single one of us is susceptible to this unless we pay attention and stay alert. It matters that Paul says in verse 28, pay attention first of all. First thing he says to pay attention to is yourselves. Pay attention to yourselves, he tells these elders. And then when he gets to 31 and he says to be alert, right before that, he's just talked about the threat that from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. This group that he's speaking to, he thinks some of them are going to go this way. And a faithful pastor knows before he ever gives his attention to some threat out there that he's worried about, he's got to pay attention first to what goes on right in here because none of us are above it. I think that's one reason the New Testament always talks about teams of elders or pastors working together, not by themselves. Every place you see it in the New Testament, this role talked about, it's spoken of in the plural because God knows in setting up the church to thrive and to be healthy, he knows what we're gonna need. He he knows we're gonna need other people around us as pastors to see things we don't see about ourselves, first of all, so that we aren't just out there doing whatever seems best to us. We have have sounding boards and, and, and corrective uh, barriers around us to protect us from the worst in us. Paul, Paul knew that and God knew that and that's why he's given us this model to follow in our churches. What we'd ask for from all of you is that you would pray, that, that we would remember the threats are real, take them seriously, but, but pray even more specifically than that. Pray that we'll have the courage and the willingness to recognize threats both within and without that, that we won't be afraid to acknowledge them when they're there and to do something about it, but that we'd also have the wisdom to know how to react properly, to not just be having this hammer in our hands and finding nails everywhere just for the chance to use it. You know, we don't want that either. We want to be, we want to be circumspect. We want to be wise in how we approach threats. Pray that we would be, that we'd have the wisdom to see what's there, what needs to happen, and then the courage to do it. And lastly, friends, with these last couple of minutes, One last thing that Paul hands on to his friends as he moves off the scene that shows us what sort of faithful pastoral ministry we need. It's this. Remember that, remember that ministry is not a job. Ministry is not a job. The final section of his speech is in a way to me, on a first reading, kind of an odd place to end such a personal and passionate moment like this one. But on deeper inspection, it is just a wonderful summary of what's been between this man and his church for their whole time together. He reminds them that when he was there, he didn't covet their money or their apparel. He didn't want their stuff. This is verse 33. In fact, he spent his time working with his own hands to make sure he had everything that he needed and not just what he needed, but had money to fund his generosity to others in need around him. He was not some hired gun. He was an investor in the life of their church. He came to them to give. You see that? Why would he bring that up here? Why would he end this speech in this place? Friends, sometimes when Paul talks about generosity, for churches and the relationship between a pastor and and a local church. Sometimes he talks about the importance of churches being generous in the support it gives to those who teach them. You'll see that in Galatians 6. You'll see it in 1 Timothy 5. 
You'll see it in Titus 3. He often goes there. When he's speaking to the church, that's what he says. Be generous. It's a sign of love for your pastors and for how you value the word that they share with you every week. But here, here he's not talking to a local church. Here he's talking to the pastors. And when he talks to the pastors, he emphasizes generosity from them to their churches. He's basically calling them to approach the church, not for what you get out of the church, but for what you want to give to the church, just like he did. Pastors, here's the thing. Faithful pastors know that the church is not a source of income for them. They see the, the income they get from their churches, if they get any at all, as just the freedom to give even more of what they already want to give to the church for nothing in return. It starts with pastors who want to give God's word to God's people because they love it. They live for it. And the income comes only to be able to free up more of their time to do what they're already doing. Sometimes, including here in Ephesus, Paul chose not to accept what it would have been perfectly right for him to accept and right for them to offer him. To make a different point, that he's there to give to them, not to receive from them. Think about what Ephesus was known for. Just a couple of weeks back, we looked at this riot that happens in Ephesus when Paul starts talking about the fact that these temples are full of gods made with hands that aren't really gods. What happens? All the people who made money off of religion in Ephesus get angry because their income dries up. Paul knows that in Ephesus, religion is big business. Surely he knows that that's what the Ephesian Christians will expect of him too. And he is not going to live with that. So he comes in saying, no, I, I won't take from you what I've taken from other churches. In fact, I'm going to work, work, work so that I can give, give, give to you. Because I've come here to offer you something, not to demand something in return. I have something to give, not to receive. It's, it's just so crucial for us, friends something to long for and to work toward in our church to see our relationship with one another not as some sort of transaction. You know, where, where pastors evaluate the church constantly and ask, you know, is this still good for me and my career advancement? Are my services here appreciated fully? How well are my needs being met or, or whatever else? And where the church on the other side is constantly evaluating its pastors like you might evaluate a, law, evaluate a lawyer or a dentist or an auto repair man. How's the customer service? Did they deliver what I was looking for? How does what they offer compare to what the competition is offering? Am I still getting my money's worth in this relationship? This isn't business between us. This is family. And in family, it's better to give than to receive. You come to one another looking to be generous. What is my opportunity to give to you on both sides of this relationship, driven by that kind of outward-seeking love? This isn't a business relationship. Look at, look at how Paul and his friends end this conversation. As soon as he said these things, he kneels down, he prays for them, and they're all just weeping. They're losing it because they aren't just losing one service provider that they'll fill with the next guy up. They're losing a member of their family. A faithful pastor knows, as, as one of my mentors once put it, that the church doesn't exist to give us jobs. We're church members first. Fundamentally, we are part of this family, depending on it just like everyone else does. 
And that makes this a wonderful picture for all of us, not just for those of us who are pastors, but for all of us. We come to our church looking to give, not to receive, because Jesus, our Lord, told us that's better, that's more blessed. We ask of our church, of, of ourselves, not what am I getting out of this place, but what can I give to serve it? What, what can I invest in our life together? Look at what God has invested in it. He obtained this church with the, with the blood of his son. What, what do I have that I can give? If that's what you believe about who we are to God, how could we possibly come to one another like customers evaluating the service? I want to be after God's own heart, don't you? Don't you want to sink your time and your resources where God has sunk his time and resources? Don't you want your life to aim at what he has aimed the life of his son? When that's how we approach our church, we'll know, like Jesus said, it's just more blessed to give than receive. And God will get the glory that he deserves from us and our relationships with one another. Let's pray that he'll make it so. Father, we do pray. Not for our sake first, but for yours. That the beauty of your love for us in Jesus would show up in our love for each other here. And we pray that you would protect us, especially in our leadership, from the threats that we always will face. And that through healthy leadership shared amongst a team, you would help our church to always be striving after what you've put in front of us, a word of hope and power to be offered to one another and to the world and relationships of love that spring up from that word and show the truth about who you are to anyone who's watching. That's what we want for our church and we ask you to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.